1: this is iaq radio indoor air quality radio the voice of the indoor air quality industry with your host radio joe hughes and the z-man Cliff and now radio joe hughes
2: Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We've got a great show for you today. We've got Dr. Gene Cole joining us. Uh, We're going to talk about water damage, sewage, mold, and public health. Called it a research to practice because Dr. Cole has been very closely involved with the practitioner community as well as being a researcher at Brigham Young University over the years and looking forward to a great show. Check out our Facebook and YouTube pages. Leave a comment, like, or subscribe. You can also sign up for the weekly show announcement at iaqradio.com, and of course, you can get our podcast through Podbean or iTunes. We also have continuing education credits available. Send me an email at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you out the quiz. Before we start, we also want to announce and thank our newest association sponsor, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. And now let's thank our Platinum Sponsor. IAQ
3: Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at JohnDon.com. That's
2: J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association and the Restoration Industry Association.
1: And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to C. Zlotnick at cs.com, or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question.
4: Hello, everyone. Congratulations go up to Canada. Don Weeks In-Air Environmental in Ottawa, Ontario, was first to identify Tricom 21st Century Press as the publisher of Dr. Michael Berry's book, Protecting the Built Environment, Cleaning for Health. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, Friday, April 12, 2019, has been sponsored by ID is the solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's trivia question. Name the heterogeneous group of gram-positive, generally anaerobic bacteria, noted for a filamentous and branching growth pattern that results in most forms in an extensive colony or mycelium. Back to you,
2: Joe. Okay, today's guest is Dr. Gene Cole. He's the director of research for LRC Indoor Testing and Research in Cary, North Carolina, probably better known as the former professor of environmental health sciences at Brigham Young University he has 35 years of research experience with a primary focus on the ecology of indoor and work environments, with a special emphasis on identification and reduction of pollutant reservoirs and sources, bioaerosols, human exposure assessment and control, product evaluation, cleaning and restoration, mold and sewage remediation, and biocides. Right up our alley. Dr Cole is also a member of the scientific advisory council of the cleaning industry research institute and a fellow of the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Good uh, good, good morning Dr Cole Do we have you on the line.
0: Thanks Joe good to be with you today.
2: Welcome great to have you and I uh, look forward to a, a nice talk. I I You know, we've been wanting to get you on for years, and um, I just saw an article recently in the cleaning industries, uh, the Siri uh, quarterly, and uh, got my attention, and I thought, you know, I've definitely got to find a way to get you on here. So you've had a really long and distinguished career in academia, but have also, you know, stayed on the, the front lines of public health, which is, I think, something we try to do for our show, bring research to practice. Let's start with how did you become so interested in and focused on the ecology of indoor and work environments?
0: Well, I guess it goes back before I got specific uh, education and training in graduate school. Uh, Prior to that, for some 10 years, I was a clinical microbiologist, so I worked in medical centers working with physicians to isolate and identify infectious disease agents, and um, quickly gained a lot of knowledge and information relative to uh, not only what were these infectious agents causing, in some cases, uh, devastating diseases, but how did those occur? What were the exposure scenarios uh, involved? What were the risks? And so without knowing it at the time, that began to formulate my interest in what later would become public health. And so with that background, uh, starting my graduate programs uh, over a six-year period at the University of North Carolina School of Public Health um, back in the late 70s, early 80s, I began to not only learn and investigate and conduct research relative to the indoor environment, uh, but to have some choice experiences. Now, back in the late 70s and through the 80s,
5: one of the drivers
0: for indoor environmental issues was the outbreak of Legionnaire's disease in 1976, Bellevue Stratford Hotel in Philadelphia believe that's still there to this day um, and of course it was the ventilation system contaminated by the bacteria uh, Legionella pneumophila resulted in uh, some 200 illnesses uh, I think it was 129 individuals that uh, actually died uh, they were very susceptible and um, over the next uh, several years, I wound up actually doing a number of investigations, most of which when it was uh, pared down to a very good likelihood of Legionnaire's disease, uh, which is a very potent um, respiratory illness, uh, produces a fulminant pneumonia, so forth. Um, it was fairly easy to detail how the outbreaks uh, could have occurred which mainly were buildings with um, air handling systems that utilized cooling towers that were contaminated from the bacteria which came from the soil as dust was blown into uh, those systems. And I guess more specifically in terms of other indoor environmental quality experiences that I had, I'll share briefly, was uh, my first home investigation. And again, this I was a member of a team still as a graduate student and uh, still learning. But this was a residential environment. So this was a home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where a professor at the university uh, had become so debilitated uh, that he couldn't work for a long period of time, um, extreme fatigue, uh, muscle aches, respiratory problems, and um, if I recall, he was out of work for maybe two years and then did feel better with various treatments of one type or another, I'd seen several physicians, and was attempting to get back to work uh wasn't to the point where he could go and work full-time at the university. He spent most of his time working from home, uh, research-related things, documents, papers, uh, that sort of thing. So um, he still experienced problems, and um, he, in talking to some of his colleagues, including those that the school of public health and environmental science felt that, um, whatever the cause of his initial illness was, and it still might be related. He was reacting to his home environment. And so if you can't go to your workplace to work and now you're reacting to your home, uh, becomes a major issue. And so he related, I remember speaking with him, Um, in terms of his, I would call it sensitivity. Well, hypersensitivity in reality. Um, He said one of his daughters uh, came home one day and within minutes, he started reacting Hmm. and uh, finally talked with her and so forth. And, uh, you know, was there anything recently that was new uh, in her life for uh, what was going on, what was she using, turned out she had uh, used a new hairspray and he reacted violently to that. And then another time he started having these sensitivity reactions and he searched the entire house, turned out to be a moldy cucumber in the refrigerator. Huh. And so... That was my first experience with extreme hypersensitivity. And at that time, he had some progressive um, lung disorder, and it was potentially life-threatening. So he wanted an entire assessment of the home. And so we went everywhere doing moisture mapping, crawl space investigation up in the attic, um, outside, ductwork, uh, everything. Probably the major thing we finally zeroed in on was one bathroom in the home where uh, apparently, when the home had been built 12 years before, uh, the plumber had never soldered the connection hmm. with the shower head on the outside of the wall to the water pipe on the inside and so for 12 years water had sprayed uh, every time someone took a shower into that wall cavity and of oh. course that was opened up and you know it was black with mold and bacteria and uh, and so forth so there were other areas that were identified that needed to be cleaned uh and his home environment wasn't being cleaned i remember uh it looked like a black dust on the window sills in some of the rooms and um, so we recommended cleaning thorough remediation of all the water damaged areas and so forth and um, there were so many problems I remember telling him you know you need to realize that the only solution to your problem might be moving getting out of this house and he wasn't agreeable to doing that as uh, he'd already spent, I forget how many thousands, tens of thousands of dollars uh, trying to determine what the problems were, fix them and so forth, but obviously there was a lot more to be done and um, we kind of left him in a quandary with that, but from that point on with those experiences, um, it became an area of scientific interest. At that time, things were uh, just beginning to be known about the indoor environment. Uh, of course, I remember when I was in graduate school, the report came down from the National Cancer Institute that formaldehyde was a confirmed animal carcinogen. And of course, that made it a suspect human carcinogen. And um, asbestos, uh, same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, asbestos then was banned from the building industry and so forth. And I remember one day discussing things um, at the school with some of my student colleagues. And we were talking about, uh, you know, how millions of people still had asbestos guns in their homes, which were hair dryers. At that Mm -hmm. time, they were insulated with asbestos. So those years, the late 70s and on into the 80s, were areas where things began to emerge in terms of the indoor environment and human health.
2: Over, You've had a long career, I'm wondering, uh, and a lot of it was focused on you know, the, the ecology of indoor environments, water damage, uh, mold remediation, flooding, sewage. What would you consider to be your most important contribution to the state of the art in those areas
0: oh my um i i guess in terms of my contribution and of course we all learn as we go along um i still enjoy going to meetings and conferences where individuals who have recognized expertise and specialties and so forth share their experiences we all learn from one another but mainly what I've done over the past, close to 40 years now, uh, being a scientist and a researcher, is to glean from the science and determine what does that mean for the average person, the general population. And so I've spent uh, a lot of, most of that time over those years taking the science and translating it into information that the public can use. In other words, here are things you can do to make your home healthier. And we may be talking about carpet and carpet cleaning. We may be talking about um, building products. We might be talking about air handling systems uh, and of course I've done this in other areas of public health It's very similar to okay what can all of us do to reduce our risk for various types of cancer well we're into nutrition we're into you know not smoking we're into uh, using sunscreen so forth so it's the same approach with the indoor environment uh, let's glean from the science and determine what can we put forth to the general population? And then, of course, it's up to individuals to either attempt to adopt those things uh, or not. And the greatest challenge in public health, especially when you have a strong association or in some cases cause and effect relationship between a hazard and uh, an illness or a disease or a syndrome, is behavior change. You know, we're all stubborn people want to do things their own way based on their own experiences and what they feel they want to do um, and not have someone tell them what to do. Uh, And that's, that becomes a challenge. And Mm -hmm. so I guess that's my greatest contribution is attempting to um, educate uh, based on my experience, anyone who might benefit from it. Hence, for example, the uh, paper and the Siri, Uh, Cleaning Science Quarterly
2: on Sewage. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Cliff, before we do, did you want to jump in here? My my first question, Gene, really uh, goes to drying buildings.
4: And I think when restoration professionals got into drying buildings, you know, we would measure relative humidity, and I don't think we understood... specific humidity. We didn't understand dew point. We didn't understand the water activity. And I think, uh, you know, thanks to you and, uh, you know, some of your colleagues, I think we have a better understanding uh, of that. And what my question is, is is when is a building dry? And is it dry once we reduce the water activity of uh, drywall and other surfaces? Uh, to the point where it will not support growth, or do we have to keep on drying the building for some lengthy time and doing moisture mapping and so on and so forth? Is that really necessary? So that's my question.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Cliff. And I guess my answer, which I don't mean to be too general, but uh, the point at which drying is complete depends upon what dry is for that environment in that area uh, of the country, you know, I, I in the can't United hear States. Him, can you? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. We have um, we have eight different climatic regions uh, in the U.S. And uh, myself, for example, living in the southeastern U.S., uh, this is a semi-tropical climate. Um, very high humidity. Uh, we're on the ocean. Um, you know, we're doing good if we can get indoor relative humidity in the summertime uh, down to the mid-50s, 50% RH, where it's going to be different if you're in Arizona or New Mexico or northern Texas, that type of thing. So I guess my... The short answer is what are the norms for moisture content, acceptable moisture content in wood, drywall, um, laminates, all of the other building materials and finishing materials um, in that particular indoor environment. Um, And that does require measurement and expertise for that particular area of the country.
4: Fair enough, and I appreciate the answer, and I think I agree with you.
2: I'm curious as far as identifying damp indoor environments, pollution reservoirs, uh, sources of indoor environments. You know, we hear a lot today about the microbiome, and and we're able to do DNA analysis for different organisms, um, you know, thousands of them now. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the progress we've made. Uh, sometimes I feel like we can't see the forest because of the trees. You know, it's like we have, we're seeing all this new information, but um, fundamentally what's the way to measure and determine whether we have damp indoor environments or, or excessive microbiological organisms in indoor environments?
0: Yeah, that's, uh, simple question with probably uh, a lot of complicating answers Um, you know we can uh, do sampling of surfaces and air but that's time-consuming and expensive and doesn't necessarily give us the information uh, that we need Um, the initial questions of course we need to ask are the occupants uh, comfortable Uh, Do they have humidity uh, under control? Um, Have there been recent instances or situations of of water damage? Um, There was a study I did years ago, probably uh, 15, 16 years ago, when I was first at BYU. And I had a group of students working with me, graduate students. And... uh, We decided to investigate single-family homes in a certain community there in Utah and um, thoroughly investigate 25 of them relevant to factors that could relate to moisture uh, accumulation uh, past history of uh, perhaps flooding or moisture intrusion um, Issues with mold sewage uh, that type of thing. So the first thing was um, These were homeowners not renters um, They had to have been in the home for at least 10 years they um, Therefore knew the history and so we went in with a team and we did an extensive history. Have you ever had a sewage backup? Um, Have you ever had flooding? Do you know if you've had a mold problem? Um, Do you have anyone in the home that's been living here that has respiratory allergies, asthma? Have they had problems, so forth? And then we did a room by room assessment of moisture, we moisture mapped the entire home on the inside. We investigated um, attics, uh, evidence of roof leaks, uh, basements. Uh, in Utah, there are a lot of basements, not crawl spaces. Um, found some homes that had uh, sewage problems. They had uh, leaking sewage. Others had been flooded majorly or minorly um and then we did an assessment of the outside you know was the home at the bottom of a grade where rainwater would run towards the house did it drain away Uh, what was the drainage like did the builder put in sufficient roof drains
5: you know were there gutters
0: and downspouts and where did they go did they just channel the water straight to the foundation which in many homes, that's exactly what it did. Um, I remember one home that had a concrete driveway that at the end of it became uh, a concrete pad at the back of the home for you know, recreation and barbecuing and so forth. And we noticed that it sloped towards the corner of the house. There were cracks in the concrete and, So I said, let's go inside and see what's going on in that corner of the home. Well, we just uh, mapped out the moisture. And, of course, on the carpet from the corner of the home, eight feet out, it was all damp. The owner said, I had no clue that that was a problem. Well, obviously, that had been occurring every time they had a heavy rain. Water would pool up, had nowhere to drain, would seep through the exterior wall into the interior wall cavity, and then from then on, uh, depending upon the amount of water. So, um, trying to focus on the original question, what what do we uh, focus on? Is that what you're referring to? What are the indicators?
2: Is yeah. A I mean, I mean, problem, problems. You know, we get a yeah. lot of research, like I said, on the microbiome and other things. Is it just stick to the basics? You know, does it smell Is it Does it look damp? Do we have uh, problems like you just described? And if so, we've got to fix those. Um, do we focus too much on measurement sometimes?
0: I, I think we do. And I think what I've just outlined are some, um, some of the issues that we need to focus on. And at the same time, you know, educate those who are living in the home or the office building whatever the work environment might be. In fact, I remember now one of those homes uh, in Utah, there was a uh, 12-year-old that had an aquarium. And, of course, uh, that's a humidification system. Mm -hmm. And the water was bubbling and there was no cover on the top. It was so humid in there that the window sills and window frames, which were wood, were all growing mold. I mean, it was just a fungal farm and uh, no one paid much attention to it. There was also an upstairs bathroom that was severely water damaged and mold coming out of cracks and crevices where moisture had penetrated, the wall, the tile, uh, and that type of thing. So, practical things. Again, there was another home where I'm sitting in the living room looking out this big picture window, and I go over and I start looking at the window frame and uh i see stains obviously from water around the uh, frame of the window and um, i said has there been a moisture problem here that you're aware of the owner said no and i said okay i looked out and they had this big front lawn and i said do you have an automatic sprinkling system he said yeah it comes on you know, all the time. I said, does it hit the front of the house? And she said, oh yeah, it, you know, hits the brick on the outside and so forth. And so that turned out to be the source of the moisture. Uh, you know, water under pressure against a brick facade, very porous, um, allowed moisture to penetrate all the way into through the wall cavity to the drywall on the inside Uh, beginning to rot the window frame and and so forth so uh we still have to go by you know our eyes and other senses you're absolutely right and in fact i'm doing a a webinar again for the epa uh, next week and it's on um, water damaged homes what can homeowners do themselves in terms of remediation and restoration so it's focusing on cleaning drying the use of disinfectants uh, and so forth and I bring up those three questions you know uh, how do you know when it's done and do they need to do testing for mold or bacteria and so forth and uh, I pose the three questions does it look clean Uh, does it feel dry is there an odor and so if those Three things are in compliance. Then again, it's up to the homeowner. Uh, they may, at that point, wish to just begin the rebuild, or mm. they have yeah. sensitive individuals in the home. They may want indoor environmental professional to come in and do clearance testing. But again, that's additional cost, and the focus recently. In the last few years by the EPA in terms of indoor environmental quality has been okay we know that in water damage flood damage situations a lot of people are going to be doing their own work because they have no insurance they have no money for a restoration company they're going to do it themselves let's give them some guidance so they can do it right do it safely so, hope
2: that helped. Absolutely. Uh, what I'd like to do is, uh, we're at halftime. But before we go to halftime, I, I just want to mention something quickly and see if, if um, what your thoughts are while we're talking about measurement um, before, during, and after remediation. You, um, you were part of a study um, on ATP as a marker for surface contamination of biological origin in schools and a potential approach to the measurement of cleaning effectiveness. Could ATP be one of the ways where we could have a uh, quick, somewhat inexpensive, um, you know, less, uh, less need for you know, sending out for analysis to assist with determining when we're done with cleaning after a water damage or a mold remediation?
0: Uh, That's a great question Joe. Right now we're still struggling with how well can we adopt ATP in terms of standardizing its use to evaluate the effectiveness of cleaning in non-water damaged environments. Mm. In fact that published study was done in the southwestern US, 27 school buildings, thousands of ATP samples, Um, and of course there can be quite a bit of variability, uh, and beginning to focus towards water damage restoration with ATP, um, I would say that we already know, and there are papers on this that have been published as well, there's really no correlation between ATP values and actual microbial counts, bacterial counts in particular. So you have that variability. ATP is a different measurement than directly measuring uh, viable bacteria. Uh, In a water-damaged environment for clearance testing, uh, I don't see its use at the present time uh, without perhaps some additional research in defining an acceptable approach. And what I mean by that is even in, and I'm coordinating a study right now in North Carolina in a school district.
5: And again, we're looking to reduce rates
0: of disease transmission and reduce absenteeism uh, in these elementary schools, you know, due to colds and flu, diarrhea and so forth. And we have intervention schools being cleaned with a set protocol and others that uh, are just controls and basically an absence of cleaning. We're doing high contact surfaces with the desktops. And um, we're hoping that we can standardize a protocol for cleaning and confirm it with ATP measures. We see differences between, in terms of water damage What is your baseline? You need a baseline of some sort. And then there are other complicating factors with ATP. ATP uh, testing, of course, is to detect ATP, which is the energy source of all living cells. So whether it's cells that have flaked off or it's viable or dead bacteria, um, you know, what, what is your baseline? for acceptable uh, remediation, restoration of a previously flood-damaged indoor environment, Uh, it would take research on those materials, in those situations. Um, Again, what would be an acceptable baseline relative to the different climatic regions of the country? It's the same with healthcare environments. And um, because of the work that was done on the theory ISA, ISSA study that was published, um, we're well on our way to establishing a more specific approach to the use of ATP to be used in the cleaning of schools. Well, can we use those data for hospitals? Well, not really. Those are different environments, different ecosystems. If we want a standard ATP, we would need to collect our data in hospitals. So for water damage restoration using ATP, we would have to focus our efforts on the various structural building finishing materials in different areas of the country uh, in order to establish an acceptable baseline that could then be used to interpret atp afterwards long-winded answer hopefully Uh, that that helps
2: i think it does help i mean it's just you know we're not there yet and that's that's fine that's you know that that happens a lot um but i think what we'll do is let's take our little break here we're going to thank our sponsors we'll be back in 90 seconds with dr gene cole we're going to talk a little bit more about the article he had in the siri science quarterly and uh Talk a little bit more about water damage restoration and flooding and sewage.
3: IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at JohnDon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. And our
2: newest association sponsor is Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. We're back with Dr. Gene Cole, and and we're going to go right into this article he wrote in the Cleaning Science Quarterly, The Science of Sewage Risks for Public and Worker Health in the New Millennium. I guess – We're going to be running a little low on time. I want to get to the roundup and bring in the the restoration industry's global watchdog when we do. But uh, before we do, let's talk a little bit about this article. Um, What is kind of new with respect to the science of sewage? I mean, you've been looking at this for many, many years. How has it changed recently, Gene? Well, the composition of sewage and
0: what's in it, and what we now know to be more hazardous than before uh, is quite extensive. Um, some of you might remember two or three decades ago that a commercial on television, you know, this is not your father's Oldsmobile. Hmm. Well, this is not your father's sewage. Uh, it's quite a bit different. It's not just human waste anymore. It's a much extended long list of industrial chemicals, and then human hygiene and medication chemical compounds uh, makes, it, makes it quite different. The microbes that are in sewage now, uh, number of published studies, and in the paper I have an extensive uh, bibliography to that extent, uh, showing extreme antibiotic resistance, and it's not surprising. Uh, we are in the age now of extreme antibiotic resistance. In some cases with specific diseases, um, physicians are down to maybe one antibiotic that may or may not work uh, to stem the tide of, infectious disease process. Um, in some cases, we have strains of organisms like Staph aureus, for example. Uh, fortunately, it hasn't spread over the last few years to become commonplace, but resistant to every one of the known classes of antibiotics. Uh, we have a problem with disease-resistant TB. TB is resurging across the earth, Um, The human element contributing to this is varied. Um, On average, we probably all take an antibiotic once or twice a year. Um, We excrete the products of that antibiotic, broken down or not broken down, uh, goes into the sewage system. Um, Other medications, we have individuals on, you know, neuropsychiatric medications, Uh, individuals on toxic anti-chemotherapy, anti-cancer drugs, chemotherapeutic agents. Uh, We have tens of millions of women on birth control pills and of course they're excreting estrogens into the environment. We can see the effects ecologically in the natural environment. Uh, You can just look at the Potomac River for example where male fish are showing female characteristics, uh, male fish with ovaries, uh, that's not normal. And so uh, that's a major concern, especially when uh, the Potomac River serves as the major source of drinking water for some five million people in the Baltimore DC area. And the majority of those chemical compounds uh, derived from pharmaceuticals, from hormones, uh, from antibiotics and the like, um, are not removed at the wastewater treatment facility. Wastewater becomes our drinking water. And um, that is a major concern at this point in time. And then we're concerned getting back to the restoration industry in particular, uh, ensuring that those that remediate um, sewage losses are adequately protected, that they're in good health, that they have the required equipment checks, that they're up to date on the essential immunizations that they should have, they should be qualified by a physician. Um, so uh, this is what we're looking at. And as I put in the article, uh, the variety of bacteria has expanded over the years. Uh, emerging pathogens, what, 20 years ago we didn't have oxygenic E. coli, and yet it's caused death in tens of thousands of individuals um, as sewage has been sprayed on crops, for example, and there have been outbreaks, uh, and they're more antibiotic resistant. We have uh, parasites, and then we have uh, industrial chemicals. This is another aspect Consumers purchase an arsenal of cleaning products. They do serve um, good purposes, but those products go full strength or diluted but unbroken down into the sewage system, and they have effects on the external environment, and if they affect the external environment, we have to take the other leap. Well, they're going to be in the drinking water, and what effects will they have on humans? You know, one thing, this is kind of an uh, aside, but while we've had this increase in hazardous composition of the sewage over the years, we've also experienced what appears to be an increase in human infertility. More and more uh, individuals, couples, are seeking fertility assistance uh, to have children. Does this have anything to do with the environment? with these chemical residuals in our drinking water uh, and the like? And the answer is possibly. So If we look at uh, the increase in breast cancer, infertility, um, and some other illnesses that are chronic, what are the implications of environmental influence? And I go right away to sewage and drinking water as potential possibilities.
2: You know, you you talked a bit about the people doing the restoration work. I'd like to ask one more question, then go into the roundup. And and Cliff, jump in here if you have something you wanted to add. I do. Okay. Um, I'll make it quick. Are there any studies that actually show what types of issues, health issues, restoration workers – have actually come down with while doing restoration work, I mean it seems to me there's there's not much there, and that we're we're basing the recommendations on for instance, sewage uh, plant workers or or other you know worst case scenarios
0: well you're you're right uh, there really isn't research out there um, There have been papers here and there over the years as you just mentioned, looking at sewage treatment plant workers, measuring exposures to endotoxins in particular, which can result in respiratory problems and some systemic problems. Endotoxin can potentiate um, severe respiratory illness and uh, contribute to other conditions. Uh, I mean, that's, it's, it's been demonstrated in some of those studies um, some of the workers, their intestinal flora has been uh, evaluated. And you know, that is something that, again, we need to think about in terms of worker protection. Um, I think there are two studies out there where they looked at the bacteria in the guts of, of sewage treatment plant workers that had potential exposures. Um, to sewage, and essentially their gut floor was very similar to what was in the sewage. Uh, not that they had, you know, all the potential pathogens, E. coli, salmonella, and the like, but um, different than the, quote, normal population of workers. Um, but you're right, there's uh, not been research on restoration workers who do, let's say, you know, sewage remediation. On a regular basis or all the time. Part of that is to do research, you need funding. And to get funding, there has to be, in general, if we look at NIOSH, you know, the government agency for doing research in the area of occupational health and safety, and that is there needs to be uh, some evidence, case studies, and a number of them that say, hey, you know, there's a bunch of workers in this industry that this is what they do on the job and they all seem to have a variety of illnesses or common illness, Um, you know, this needs to be researched. Well, then NIOSH's ears perk up and they may appropriate funds to investigate that. But if there's not any indication that this is, you know a problem across the country that let's say several thousand workers each year are experiencing then the research just won't get done so I think right now with the um, voluntary consensus standards that are out there on water damage restorations um, EPA guidance documents uh, training materials for example I just finished updating my chapter on chemicals, which is mainly uh, antimicrobials, biocides, uh, to the RIA training, training manual, um, then uh, I think that's, that's the best we have at this time. So until we see essentially an outbreak, an epidemic, um, I don't see the research happening And I think we're addressing it sufficiently at this time.
2: Okay. Cliff, did you want to jump in and get a question before we go
3: to I
4: I I do. Uh, First, um, Gene, in my uh, questions that I submitted to you, I'm not sure whether or not you are familiar with this uh, Pittsburgh protocol. I'm not going to ask you a question about it. I'm just going to suggest perhaps if you're unfamiliar with it that you look at it before you um, do your EPA presentation, because you may get some uh, different ideas or perspectives from a remediation standpoint. But uh, my final question is, you know, retrospectively, if we look back on, you know, the Stachybotrys-driven mold-to-gold rush, uh, do you think that, as a whole, all parties overreacted to it?
0: Um, I guess my general answer would be yes. Um, for the public, it became, you know, something akin to the Black Death, you know, the plague, <laughs> and uh, literally, <laughs> uh, you know, that uh, any mold that looked dark was oxygenic, and they were going to die. Uh, at the same time, as we know, it spurred the water damage restoration industry. To respond to emphasizing that good research and science uh, needed to be done to explain what was happening uh, and back in the early stages yes there were many individuals who thought you know mold is gold and they you know last week they were uh, you know, plastering walls and this week right. there's a sign on the pickup truck that says mold remediation.
4: Right.
0: And to put it in perspective, well, I got a phone call years ago, so I 12, 15 years ago, something like that. Woman in California. And uh, had to be California, right? Exactly. Sorry if any of you listening are from California. But <laughs> there's some strange dudes out there, let's face Never. it. Uh and this woman said, I got your name and uh, just wanted to fly something by you. She said, I've had water damage uh, in the two back bedrooms of my home here in California. And I know there's mold growing. I mean, I can see it visibly. Uh, and I'm assuming it's also in the walls. You know, I've done some reading about it. I know it has to be taken care of. And so I started looking who could i call i found this one um individual that said he was a mold remediator and so i asked him to come and take a look give me an estimate and so she said what he proposed was that he would go into these bedrooms and he would open up the wall cavities and he would also open up the windows And then he would set up huge fans and to blow the air from the rooms out the windows and that he would take a a blow driver, a dryer, a, uh, you know, leaf blower and blow all the mold out of the wall cavities Mm -hmm. and then blow them out the window. (laughs) And she said, "That just, doesn't seem right to me.
3: <laughs>
0: I said, oh my gosh. I said, no, it's not right. That's the absolute worst thing that anyone could ever do to your mold situation. And I hope you haven't agreed to do it or paid any money. And she said, no. I said, okay. I said, nope, that's a scam artist. He has no training, no expertise in what needs to be done and explain to her how to contact a reputable company that had the experience, the equipment, and would not blow, you know, X billion mold spores all over her home and cause more of a problem. So, uh, yeah, on all sides of the issue early on. Uh, but I'm impressed with uh, the restoration industry uh, that I started interacting with in 1990. So that's almost 30 years, right. 29 years uh, this year. And at the time, you know, I knew nothing about it and uh, have been working and um, giving up my time as necessary to, to help improve things. And I think we're in a great place today in that
2: regard. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, well let's let's go to the roundup, John. All right, we've got to start with the restoration industry global watchdog, Pete Consigli. Pete, I know you've been chomping at the bit there. Ask a question, make a comment, whatever you'd
5: yeah. like. Hey, uh, let me just jump right in. I uh, Actually, I took some notes in the beginning because I had some comments I wanted to make. Anyway, I, I enjoyed your conversation with Gene. And Gene, just to correct the record straight, you first started getting involved with the industry in the late 80s. It was probably circa 88, 89 when uh, Cooper uh, recruited you and, um, and Dr. Berry when you were both working at the EPA. But yeah, you did really your best work in the 90s, F- fabulous work before you moved on to, uh, the, to BYU. Um, I, uh, so listen, um, one of the things that I want to throw out here, and I, I actually was talking to John Downey last week after the, uh, interview with Jim Harris, and it's my feeling that, uh, the series should consider next year, I guess in 2020, to do a cleaning for health symposium. Now, um, a lot of people may think that cleaning for health term has kind of been, uh, diluted and it's overused, uh, no different than the whole green, cleaning, green term. But but I believe there should be a theme about cleaning for health, put into perspective for the 21st century. And, um, you know, I'm really happy to see the committee that uh, John's put together, the SAC committee for uh, Siri with, uh, with Shaughnessy and Moon. And Dr. Spivak and yourself, Gene, uh, seems like uh, all, all he's put a big fence up to prevent you guys from just wandering out into the pasture, you know, in this in your twilight years, which I think is really, really a good thing. And so, uh, so Gene, I, I, I'm, I'm formally throwing out there for the record, and Cliff's taking notes to put it in his blog, that you should share that. And the way that I make my case for that is if you recall, Gene, we did two fabulous cleaning for health symposiums. Uh, in the mid, in the late 1990s, the last one being in 1999 in Seattle, uh, under Merck with Sue Smith. Actually, I see Sue Valenti's on the call. She probably remember the, remember those days. And that that cleaning, those cleaning for health symposiums were fabulous. And the guys that you had that did the research on the vacuums and from uh, Hoover and all that kind of stuff was something. and, and Jim Harris mentioned some of that. Uh, you know, that research on an interview last week. And I, I just think that there's a whole audience there that, that needs to see that and to be updated. In particular, the thing that has stuck with me two decades later, it, you had a colleague of yours, a public health guy, uh, like your counterpart from Denmark that was a keynote speaker. His name was Dr. Peter. His last name began with a V. I don't remember it, but I'm sure you do. And he made a statement, you could hear a pin drop in the audience when he talked about the difference between the EU and the U.S. when it comes to maintaining buildings in this whole cleaning for health. And in essence, the cliff note version is that in Europe, the caretakers of the buildings are held in high regard because the buildings are where people spend a lot of their time, and it's a profession. Where in the U.S., the first thing to get cut, it's a part-time job, are or the, or, or the janitorial people and the housekeepers. And his statement was: Until the U.S. changes that mindset and that philosophy, we will always have those problems because we don't take it, you know, the same way the European philosophy. I think that's something that's worth, you know, advocating 20 years later and seeing if we can change the hearts and minds. It's really changing in people's hearts that will change their that will change their minds. Um, so I, that's something that I, I for sure would throw out there. I think there's a lot of research. Older research that could be brought back up. One of the things, you know, I saw Joe started the planning for the Healthy Building Summit in Seven Springs in October. A couple of years ago, I had the chance to do a special presentation with a lot of the old research. And Gene, there was, a, there was at least three or four studies that you did that I had included in my research. And there's a lot of other stuff out there. Some of the stuff that Mac Pierce did for the WLS program with mold and a number of other things that, that probably get fallen between the cracks. That still have relevance today, um, and and I think that you know that's important. That these kind of things kind of brought back because sometimes you know everything that's old is new again. And uh, um, anyway, so th- those are my thoughts in in regard to that. Um, the summer camp invitations went out. Everyone, you got a lot of summer campers on the list yesterday, and I noticed that Lou Harriman Herrim- made the cut this year. He's doing a two-hour presentation on Wednesday morning that shares the hard lessons learned called the wet and wild of 40 years of humidity control. I think that's going to be fabulous. I already sent an email out. It's in your inboxes, Joe and Cliff, to all the usual insider suspects on that. Uh, Dave Mason said yesterday, as soon as the invitation hit his inbox, he's dropped everything. He called the hotel he said the line was busy for 20 minutes with the room <laughs> filling out, but he, he finally got, he got a, a room in there at a fabulous rate, $125 a night. So you guys are coming to summer camp. We got a couple of newbies. I ain't telling you, but in RAA and other insiders that are going to be coming to really enjoy that. So, uh, so Gene, a couple things to wrap up and throw it back to i like your comments on my idea about doing this cleaning for health symposium. Uh, I think the work that you and me did, uh, in the past, not only with Merck, but all the stuff that we did the, the, when Richard had all, the, all that money from the three regions for Tulsa, uh, I think was groundbreaking stuff. I, I remember it with much fondness and, and really enjoyed our time together doing that. Um, so I would like your thoughts on that. And then the other thing I'd like you to comment on, and this is I'll save this for last, because this may or may not be controversial, and you may or may not, you know, like me and Cliff, would, you know, we would never come up with a controversial thing. I don't know whether you can comment on this, but this whole thing on ATP— when you were at DynCorp, uh, after you left uh, the EPA, um, uh, you were hired, I won't mention the name, but you were hired to, to do uh, uh, private research on the efficacy of ATP in the mid-90s when ATP was just starting to kind of hit the radar here. Uh, and when I was living out in California and doing a lot of work with Jim Holland and a number of other people, and David Bierman and Peter Sirk with using ATP after sewage, and that research never got published. Anything that you could share that's not confidential here twenty years later about that I think would be useful because the fact that it wasn't published you know tells me well maybe the the, the person that hired you to do that research maybe the results weren't what they expected or not so uh, there's a lot of drama and a lot of talk about the use of ATP and uh, I'm kind of on the fence I can go either way, What I think it has a use, but i don't think it has the i don't think it's a magic bolt like a lot of people say so anyway. Those are my thoughts today. And um, anyway, I uh, I look forward, Gene, to seeing you. Uh, I guess at Miami, Ohio, in July, uh, at the Siri conference yeah, the meeting. That'll be great. So uh, and possibly sometime in August, uh, maybe visit him with you in uh, in the Research Triangle when I pass through the areas. Part of the tail end of my summer camp annual road trip. Anyway, uh, enjoyed uh, enjoyed the interview today, and I'll, I'll turn it back to you guys, boys.
0: Thanks, Pete
2: did you want to add anything to what Pete said?
0: Uh, just very quickly, cleaning for health, um, I agree. Of course, the basis for that goes back to Dr. Mike Berry. Uh, what do we mean by cleaning for health? Well, maximizing the physical removal of the unwanted materials while minimizing uh, chemical and moisture residues. And we just now have to... Uh, Adapt that to different environments with different materials and designs and so forth and see how we can uh, best make it work. Um, On the ATP, Pete, you just need to send me more information because I just can't recall doing ATP work early on. uh, Back then in the 90s. Uh, I just remember my ATP work starting years ago when we were investigating the potential for research in the initial phases of the series study. Um, but I will be at the series symposium in Columbus, Ohio uh, in July. And it looks like I will be, uh, I'll just mention this, this will be the last thing. Uh, myself and one of my former students have spent quite a bit of time this past year looking at the issue of cleaning and disinfection in long-term care facilities. Um, you know I don't want to label long-term care facilities as seething pits of infectious disease, but um, they can be. We're talking about a very susceptible population. We're talking about um, serious pathogens, Clostridium difficile, Methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, uh, Vancomycin-resistant Enterococci, And now we have this newly emerged pathogen, Candida auris, which is uh, a yeast, which makes it a fungus, and it's resistant to drug treatment, and it's resistant to environmental decontamination. And so I believe I'm going to be in a uh, presentation slash panel discussion um, with two other individuals uh, in that one session. I'm going to be sharing some information about long-term care facilities.
2: We'll look forward to that, uh, Cliff. Any final questions? I'm done. Thanks, Joe. All right. Now, yeah.
4: Thank you, Jane, for joining us. It was yeah, good to hear your voice. I really
2: appreciate it. wish we could have spent a little more time on the, uh, the use of the disinfectants and, and sanitizers. I, I guess maybe if you could just quickly, I, I, it seems like. Um, you feel maybe they're overused in regular household cleaning, but you also feel there's a need for them when we're doing certain things like sewage remediation, uh, maybe water damage restoration. Could you comment on that real quick, Gene?
0: Sure. No, I'm uh, in favor of biocides. Um, Of course, doing work years ago for the EPA on their uh, standardized methods for evaluating them um you know most work well uh i wish epa would require some in-use testing to give us more information but they do serve a purpose uh, things have changed over the years for example um botanicals now are very uh, popular and um, they demonstrate the efficacy against bacteria fungi viruses uh, Everyone likes them, both users and consumers, who are having their homes remediated because it's a, quote, natural element, uh, thyme oil, and um, definitely for sewage remediation or category three water uh, damage, certainly, which contains a variety of potentially pathogenic agents. Again, we just have to stress uh, safety in their use. Um, as we've been saying now for decades, you know, biocides aren't the solution. They're part of the solution of the problem. And there's a place for them. And uh, we just need to use them properly and, and safely. Uh, and I think things are going well in the industry now in that regard.
2: I'm really glad I asked and that uh, you were willing to stick around and, and uh, answer a few questions. We went over a little bit with Dr. Gene Cole, but it was well worth it. I want to thank you for joining us. Also, want to thank my co host, the Z Man, Cliff Zlotnick, uh, Pete Consigli, the restoration industry's global watchdog, back in the saddle. Good to have yeah, you back. Hey, uh, Joe, b- yes, before,
5: you, before you sign off, I just wanted to mention to Gene, Gene, what I was referring to in the 90 of the ATP research you did at DynCorp had to do with one of the manufacturers when the ATP just kind of started hitting the, the radar, if you would, in our industry. And particularly in California, it was a lot of work trying to use that uh, as some kind of mechanism to determine the ep- efficacy of sewage remediation. And, um, but you never published the work. And I, like I said, I'm not really sure why. Maybe uh, the, the, the funder of the study didn't have the results that they wanted. So I didn't know whether there was anything that could be shared in that or not, or whether there was any confidentiality after two decades, but maybe that's something we could talk uh, about uh, at the Siri. Concert. Yeah.
0: It, I'm, I'm not sure that I did it or finished it or, yeah, I can't even remember starting it. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, to that. Well, I,
5: re- I remember us talking about it and uh, we'll get a chance okay. to make a vi- visit in uh, July and, uh, and, uh, and and talk about a little bit more because it's, it's picked up a lot of momentum in the industry and there's a lot of different uses and applications and maybe a little bit controversy about it. I do think it has a place, but sometimes I think it kind of gets oversold. So uh, uh, anyway, it'd it'd be worthy, worthy of some. Certainly did a cleaning for health thing. I would think that uh, that'd be maybe a good topic to have a good panel on. Anyway. Okay guys. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thank you. Also,
4: hey Joe, like, or, or Joe, if I could just respond to you know to Pete's question, I, I think your question was asked and answered, Pete, because Gene talked about it and the difficulties that they were having in trying to uh, utilize it for water damage, trying to get, use it in schools, trying to use it in, in hospitals. Uh, you need to gather uh, field data, you know, from a bunch of you have to establish the. The, the data, you know wide database in order to do it and you know it would seem to me that that would cost a lot of time and a lot of money and um it would seem to me that uh, no individual manufacturer unless it was a big company like 3m or whatever would be willing to fund something like
5: that but, well that you know what cliff that 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 may be the case so but uh in any case uh that th- thanks for, thanks for the input on that. And Gene, uh, one other thing, that that great chapter that he wrote on Biaside years ago for the W.S. class, almost two decades later, it's still in there, I think, in the uh, revision copy. So uh, good job on that work. Great.
2: Thanks. All right. Thank you, Dr. Gene Cole, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick at the controls. John, you got to have faith. Uh, joining us for the roundup, the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete consigli most importantly our growing group of loyal listeners will be back next friday at noon with the next episode of iaq radio plus
1: for iaq radio i'm spike Reed saying thanks for listening